You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Inspired to Act, featuring international leaders in the field of medicine. Here is your host, founding chair, Department of Neurology, Brigham and Women's Hospital, and professor of neurology at Harvard Medical School, Dr. Martin A. Samuels. Hello and welcome to this, our third special edition of Inspired to Act. Inspired to Act continues to evoke a number of inquiries from our listening audience of healthcare professionals. I'm gratified by this response and will endeavor to answer questions periodically that you have emailed or sent to the program. Please remember, we ask that you be a healthcare professional to submit a question and also that you do not ask for a personal diagnosis. You can email questions for a future program to inspired at reachmd.com. Well, here's our first question. Question number one. I have a 72-year-old male patient who underwent bypass surgery. He was otherwise healthy other than the cardiac disease and mentally normal. Immediately after surgery, his mental status was normal, but he has, according to his family, become increasingly odd, sometimes argumentative, sometimes forgetting vital things. What is this? Well, I think coronary artery bypass surgery has become uh, so routine that people really expect nothing at all to go wrong. But in actual fact, if you think what is done in this procedure, where people are put on a bypass pump for a period of time, and then they're, often the heart is stopped and then restarted, it's not surprising to realize that there are brain lesions that occur as the result of these uh, very dramatic procedures. And even though they can do them very, very effectively, the truth is that most patients do have some cognitive or behavioral change after uh, coronary artery bypass surgery. In fact, if you test people very, very carefully with neuropsychological tests before and after surgery, you can find some deficits in virtually every single patient. Fortunately, at about a year after coronary bypass surgery, if everything went as it was supposed to, most people are almost back to normal, but it is not at all rare to have a slight change in behavior this kind of behavior that uh, was described in this patient sounds like what we would call frontal lobe behavior, meaning that uh, his inhibitions have been lowered somewhat and his behavior has changed somewhat. Now, usually we don't uh, actually treat this in any specific way, although there are atypical neuroleptic drugs that can sometimes help if patients like this really are unmanageable. Usually, however, over the next few months or a year, it'll continue to improve, and uh, ultimately he'll probably be back to what everybody will consider a be uh, baseline state. I think we're ready for the next question. One of my middle-aged patients had Lyme disease three years ago and recovered. She now claims she's achy and tired. Is she depressed, or is this chronic Lyme disease? And is that an actual entity? Well, there's a very, very important and interesting uh, question. Lyme disease is really the uh, modern syphilis. Remember, it's a spirochete. It's an organism very similar to the treponema pallidum, which causes uh, syphilis. And Lyme disease comes in three stages, very much the way syphilis comes in three stages. The first stage is a skin lesion. In the case of syphilis, of course, that's a chancre. And in the case of Lyme disease, it's erythema migrans. That's this target-shaped rash at the site of the bite by the tick. This often disappears, and often the patient has no further symptoms, even if they're not treated. Second phase is a hematogenous spread of the organism, which is, you recall, is Borrelia burgdorferi. That's the organism that causes Lyme disease. And often patients after that second or hematogenous spread period become asymptomatic, even without treatment. But there are a few people 
who will go on to what uh, would correspond to tertiary syphilis. That's sort of tertiary or chronic Lyme disease. And that means that the organism actually makes its way into the central nervous system, into the meninges, causing a kind of meningitis, and then ultimately into the nervous system. This is a very, very rare complication of Lyme disease, even if it's untreated. If one treats Lyme disease in the first or second phases of the illness, that is at the time of the rash or the arthralgias that happen at the beginning or the hematogenous spread period, even with oral antibiotics like doxycycline, which is the one we tend to use, that prevents the third phase of the disease and the patient should be completely protected. Unfortunately, a lot of people have become alarmed largely because of internet sites which uh, alleged to prove to the lay public that Lyme disease can go on undetected and produce a whole panoply of different kinds of symptoms, including tiredness and weakness and fatigue, symptoms that we would ordinarily associate with depression. And unfortunately, there are uh, doctors who will uh, tell patients that they have Lyme disease, this chronic Lyme disease, and treat them with intravenous antibiotics, ceftriaxone, even put in percutaneous central lines, a so-called PICC line, and treat people for six weeks at a time with this very expensive and to some extent risky antibiotic, telling them that they have to be treated over and over and over again to obliterate uh, this infection. And there are patients who uh, search for doctors who will basically tell them that they have Lyme disease and treat them in this aggressive way. Now, as I told you, there, there is a chronic Lyme disease. It's mainly in untreated patients. It's very, very rare. And those people have an abnormality in their spinal fluid, cells in their spinal fluid, and antibodies directed against this organism that we can measure objectively. And in those patients, we actually do treat with intravenous ceftriaxone, and even they get better. So I think that is a sort of a rational and balanced approach to uh, Lyme disease of the nervous system. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to a special edition of Inspired to Act on ReachMD Radio, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Martin Samuels, answering inquiries and questions that have been sent in or emailed to us here at ReachMD by you, the healthcare professionals that make up our listening audience. Uh, how about the next question? A 50-year-old professional woman with a very hectic schedule has been forgetting things, dropping objects, bumping into things. This frightens her, and she is afraid that she has early signs of ALS. Does she? Well, she certainly doesn't have ALS, but it's a very important uh, question because what you are presenting here is a very common problem that we face in the office and in the emergency department, and that is a, a patient who is anxious about some diagnosis that they've got in the back of their mind. Now, uh, how did they get that idea in the back of their mind? Well, in the old days, people would read about it in books or they might hear about it from a relative or a friend or maybe somebody in the family had that illness and they've been worried about it for some years and now they develop a symptom and they believe they may have this disease. When I was in medical school, we used to call that the medical student's disease. Medical student would hear a lecture on a subject and that night the medical student would feel as though he or she had that disease. And we joked about it, but it actually is no joke. It's really quite disabling for people. And this is where the Internet has really hurt us. It's produced so much information, information which is unedited, which we can't vouch for, which anybody can get their hands on. So you can imagine a person who heard about ALS or heard about Lou Gehrig's disease. Maybe there was a family member with uh, Lou Gehrig's disease, which, of course, is a horrible illness, very frightening illness develops a neurological symptom of some sort or another, 
immediately thinks that they might have this disease and then they get much, much worse and stop remembering things normally and so on. The reason I know it isn't ALS is ALS is a pure motor disease. It produces weakness and wasting of muscles. It never has any effect on cognition. It doesn't make people forget things, and uh, clearly that is another problem. And what's happening in this patient, almost certainly, is that the patient has become so obsessed, so frightened by the idea of ALS that they've developed an inattentional syndrome. Inattention is the inability to focus on one subject while holding other subjects at bay. And uh, if you couldn't do that, you really wouldn't be able to learn anything. It's actually the most common disorder of the mental status that we see in the office or in the hospital. And one of the most common causes of that is obsessing about some other problem. So the person can't get out of their mind that she might have this serious disease, ALS, and as a result of that, she's having trouble remembering things, can't focus on things. So what we would do in the office is to carefully examine her, take it seriously, and then sit with her afterwards and say, now, why is it that you think you have ALS? And she would probably tell you it's because my Uncle Al had ALS, and I remember him bumping into things. And at that point, you have to spend time reassuring that patient and telling them why it is that you know that this is not ALS, and then go on to explain why it is that they're having this, this memory disturbance, which really is an attentional problem. And then you would hope that that alone would be the treatment, and the person would feel well, they'd go about their business, and the symptoms would disappear. If the cognitive symptoms didn't disappear, then on the next visit to the office, I would do a detailed examination of the mental status and just to reassure myself that there really wasn't an authentic memory disorder. So I hope that's helpful with that very, very common problem. How about another question now? What is your recommendation for relatively healthy middle-aged people who have some sort of backache or chronic back pain or even a somewhat disabling back injury? Conservative treatment or surgery? Well, back pain is the second most common reason why people come to see a neurologist after headache comes back pain. And back pain actually is one of the most common reasons why people come to doctors. And it's one of the most expensive problems that we have in the United States. It uh, causes an enormous loss of income because of disability. So it's really a very serious problem. It comes in two types, neck pain and associated arm symptoms, and low back pain and associated leg symptoms. By and large, when people talk about back pain, they're talking about low back pain. And one very simple rule to keep in mind is that you should think about patients with back pain as either having primarily a back problem or primarily having a leg problem. People who primarily have a leg problem, that is to say, pain that radiates into the leg or symptoms such as numbness, loss of sensation, or weakness in a leg, are much more likely to have a herniated disc, which would actually be amenable to a surgical interaction or intervention, than uh, somebody who has pure back pain. In fact, I, I can't think of the last patient who I have seen who was operated on for pure back pain who really got better. I think that is uh, not a very good indication for back surgery. In actual fact, back surgery is very good for treating people with herniated discs who are getting leg symptoms, but if the patient can be patient and they can wait it out, almost everybody will get better without surgery. These discs uh, actually desiccate, they dry out, and they disappear over time. So if you repeat the MRI a few weeks later, you can't even find the disc that caused the original symptoms. Many people don't have the disposition to do that, though. They just can't uh, 
wait, and they'll constantly say, well, can't we do something about this? Can't we do something about this? And in some of those, I'd refer them to a spine surgeon, either an orthopedic spine surgeon or a good neurosurgical spine surgeon. But I wouldn't refer a patient who had pure back pain. I think the treatment there is conservative, physical therapy, massage, things which are not risky. Remember, people with pure back pain, without leg pain, often have comorbidities, and those comorbidities include obesity and usually an ulterior motive of some kind, conscious or otherwise. By that, I mean workman's compensation claims, not wanting to go back to work. This could be conscious or it could be unconscious, but as long as it's present, you're going to have a very hard time helping people with pure back pain, and I certainly don't think surgery is the answer. You have been listening to Inspired to Act on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals, featuring international leaders in the field of medicine, hosted by Dr. Martin A. Samuels.